overwhelmed, and it seems like they were they were getting just weary and discouraged. Um, it's a letter that's me- meant to give them renewed resolve. Um, it's meant to reignite a passion for serving the Lord, even when there are so many things all around us that might be discouraging or um, just draining. Um, it's a letter that's meant to isolate the glory of Christ um, in our view so that when we see Jesus, we're motivated to serve God, um, to be grateful to God, and to rejoice in him. We'll see that in chapter 13, um, starting in verse 15, where we'll be this morning. But the theme of the letter, I think, um, I mentioned in the Bible study this morning that it's helpful when you're reading a book of the Bible, and as you're reading and as you're getting more familiar with the themes of the letter or maybe some driving points that are made in the letter, it can be helpful to notice maybe a verse or a passage that seems like it really summarizes everything or, or holds everything together um, or really centers on something in the letter, and I think that can be helpful to meditate on. And So Hebrews chapter 12, um, verse 2, is where it talks about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him uh, endured the cross. And I think that's really the driving point of the whole letter. He begins by... Uh, contrasting Jesus in comparison to things that in scripture are well known as glorious or powerful things. And that leads ultimately to making applications of faith um, that he begins to make in chapter 10 and 11. And uh, in chapter 12 and 13, he begins making more practical applications. So in chapter 13, verse 15 and 16, we're going to be looking at the the first couple applications he makes, um, at least in this section. But I've titled this um, section of Hebrews, The Discipline of God's Work. Uh, So like chapter 12, you know, I titled that The Discipline of Faith. Um, The beginning of chapter 13, The Discipline of Love. Uh, And then chapter 13, still verse 7 through 14, The Discipline of Discipleship. Because ultimately, the reader of this letter, the original recipients, uh, in chapter 10, they were people who, as I mentioned, were getting discouraged Um, It mentioned that they at one time had been enduring uh, reproach and tribulation. Uh, They were having their property seized and were enduring that joyfully, recognizing that they had a better inheritance and enduring one. Um, But they were going to have to make sacrificial applications to do these things. And so there's a sense of having the faith to do what is right, what we're called to do, even when circumstances or our own will have to be overcome in order to get there. So, 15 and 16, I think, encourage us to make continuous sacrifices. And to lead into this, I want to go back uh, to verse 10 through 14, because I really think this is a lead-in to the final applications of the letter. So before we look at verse 15 and 16, I want to read 10 through 14 again here in Hebrews 13. We have an altar from which those who serve, uh, from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And he's talking about the physical tabernacle, uh, like the Jewish system that still would have existed at the time of this writing. And then verse 11, he says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people, and that just means purify, make them holy, bring them to God, through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Really the principle that we mentioned last time is when Jesus went outside the camp, he was stripped. 
Uh, I heard a lesson quite some time ago where there was a concept in Scripture that was followed into the New Testament. It's the Brook Kidron. Uh, the Brook Kidron in the Old Testament, whenever um, there was a king in Jerusalem who wanted to eradicate idolatry that was brought into the nation, uh, burning the idols, smashing them, and just like throwing out the unclean things, they would, they would put those things across the Brook Kidron. In John's Gospel, it makes a note, the only Gospel that makes this note, that when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he crossed the Brook Kidron. And the person preaching that lesson made, made the point that um, when you follow that theme of, of what is beyond the Brook Kidron, Jesus would have knowingly understood he was going out to the unclean place, that he was going to the place of burning, the place of shame. And so in verse 13 and 14 here, the imitation is Jesus going out there now. We follow him outside the camp. And just as Jesus in his ministry in John's gospel, John chapter 15, he made it very clear that our expectation cannot be that the world will receive us well as we're serving God, but that in ambitiously seeking the promise of our lasting city in heaven, we may in the process of applying God's word be stripped in ways that relate us to Jesus. So verse 15 and 16, I want you to think about these applications in terms of that, that kind of principle. How can these applications be made even when it requires the sacrifice of that, that willingness to suffer for the sake of making these applications? So let, let's read 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of, our, of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So there's, in both of the verses here, an implication of the urging of continuance even when it's difficult or there may be a temptation to give up. So verse 15 mentions, let us do this continuously. And then in verse 16, it mentions not neglecting doing this. I want to start talking about this idea of continuously offering a sacrifice of praise. When does praise and thanksgiving become a sacrifice? Because I would argue that scripturally, if something costs me nothing, if it's so natural that it's easy to accomplish and convenient, it doesn't mean that it's bad necessarily, but it may not necessarily really be a sacrifice. So when does praise, giving God praise and giving him thanks, when does that become a sacrifice? And I want to look at some examples here that I think give context to this, especially this idea, this being done in the beginning of the verse specifically through Christ, this becomes possible. I want to look back at some Old Testament examples of people who gave God praise as a sacrifice in a way that's similar to the Christians here that were being written to, people in the Old Testament who were suffering grievous trials and their circumstances were giving them every reason to have no sense of thankfulness, but they still gave God incredible thanks because of what they knew to be true about God. I want to start with Habakkuk. That may not be a book of the Bible that you may immediately know where it is. It's near the end of the Old Testament. It's by Zephaniah, uh, Haggai, Zechariah. So it's near the end of your Old Testament. It's, it's a three-chapter uh, book. And in the beginning of Habakkuk, what makes this particular book unique is he has a complaint that he brings to God. Jerusalem is supposed to be a place of justice where the law of God is being carried out. And Habakkuk is confident that God has the capacity 
to change things. He knows that God can directly intervene. He's done it in the past. Um, he knows that God is displeased with the situation. So why is God allowing Jerusalem in his day to become a place of lawlessness? Why is he allow, allowing the righteous to end up losing, in a sense? And God, in his initial response, tells Habakkuk that the situation is actually only going to get worse. Injustice is going to get worse. The law is going to be trampled on even more. And eventually he mentions that lawless people, the Babylonians, are actually going to come and destroy Jerusalem, which Habakkuk then, that doesn't exactly help because that can't be in the end of the story. And so in chapter 2, God gives Habakkuk one final response where he makes it clear that God is working specifically to complete his promises of salvation. And that everything that's happening, it's not that God is neglecting his promises. It's not that God has given up on his covenant. It's that God, in ways that Habakkuk could not comprehend until he spoke with God, in ways he didn't understand, God was working, and God was working towards the very goal that Habakkuk was wishing for. So, Habakkuk chapter 3. He recognizes this is not going to get better physically. Circumstances are going to not change, and it's going to be horrendous. So look at Habakkuk 3, verse 16. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place, I tremble. Because I, wait, I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. So he's accepted the guarantee that God has made is the Babylonians are going to come and this is going to be catastrophic. Verse 17, that means that the land uh, and its condition is going to um, evaporate as well. So he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive tree should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. So just stop there. You see the situation he's acknowledging. So he's saying, even if the land were to become so desolate that you can literally not find any food and there's no cattle producing milk. So he's saying like, let's just say that what's going to happen is we're all actually going to starve to death. And in the condition when we're most vulnerable, the Babylonians are going to come and destroy us. And that's, that's actually exactly what would happen and did happen. That really magnifies verse 18. Yet I will exult in the Lord. It's that same language as David, the psalmist in Psalm 145, the, the idea of extol, the, the highest kind of praise, the most passionate kind of exaltation. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God, the Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk in my high places. Interesting note about verse 19. Um, David in Psalm 19, he actually used that exact same language. He's made my feet like hind's feet, makes me walk in my high places. So Habakkuk is saying this before there's been any deliverance. What's, what's interesting is David in Psalm 18 uses those words after there has been deliverance. So Habakkuk's perspective is that based on God's promise, he's, it's like he's already been delivered. Everything is as if the situation's already resolved. Because eternal life at this point to him has been made so clear. If God is working for salvation, if God is still compassionate about his promises and his judgments, 
And if God's not going to resolve the situation presently, and if Habakkuk is even going to die before these things are resolved, then what does that mean about the nature of God's promise of salvation? What is it really about? And I think he understands it's about more than the physical city of Jerusalem and its condition. It's not about Jerusalem being a place of perfect lawlessness as it was physically, but that God was working for a greater promise that he recognized here. Another example is Psalm 89. If you want to turn to the Psalms. Um, So Gianna has mentioned that it's, like I say a lot that there's a lot of times I say this is my favorite place in the Bible. This is another one of my favorite places in the Bible is Psalm 89. (laughs) It's, It's an amazing Psalm. So I want to look at the end of the Psalm before we look at the beginning. And it This is a very jarring psalm. It's very long, but it looks like it's almost contradicting itself. It's very strange. So in verse 38 of Psalm 89, the psalmist begins what he ends up concluding the psalm with is a lament. He says, But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenants of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken all his walls broken down all his walls, who have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also turn back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. So he's saying not only has God desolated the people of his covenant and the place of his covenant, But even when his own people have tried to defend that place, God has actually ensured that they lose the battle. So he's saying, God, you've you've laid us desolate, and you've done this. And he is correct. The interesting thing about this is the first 37 verses are about the most passionate, eruptive, exuberant, joyful praise in all the Psalms. And it's important to note that that is in the circumstances of verse 38 and forward. Go back to verse 1 of Psalm 89. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Look at verse 16 through 18. Uh, So the psalmist uh, in this psalm, the the eruption of praise doesn't just come because of the psalmist's personal assurance that God's promises based on circumstances have actually not failed. It it looks that way. That is legitimately the reality. When Jerusalem was destroyed, I mean, that's really how it looked, right? But he knows because of the assurance and God's promises and faithfulness and the proof of that in the past, he knows that not only will he receive the ultimate promise of this assurance. But look at verse 16, uh, starting in verse 15. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. And I think this ultimately is is, is the goal of faith that the Hebrew writer is trying to lead both the reader and us to. That we can be honest with God about the struggles of our circumstances, about how bad things may appear, but having such assurance in the Lord where it's as if those circumstances are eclipsed 
by the glory of God's faithfulness. And that's exactly what the Hebrew writer has been emphasizing to the readers is their, their suffering, their trials, the way they're being tempted to withdraw from each other and from God. None of those things contradict God's faithfulness to his promises. And there is so much evidence in the working of God in the past as it's seen in his word that shows that God will never fail to keep his word. And in this section of Psalms, over and over again, they reflect on the history of what God had done with the nation to remind themselves personally that God's promises have greater value than their circumstance. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 20. This will be the last one we'll look at. I just wanted to show you just a consistency um, with people in the Old Testament who were suffering clearly difficult circumstances and yet through God and through him alone, they were able to transcend, to rise above the circumstance to recognize the glory of God's promises and the faithfulness to keep his promises. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah begins a lament in verse 7. This brings the first section of the book to a close. So chapter 21 begins kind of a new section in Jeremiah. The first 20 chapters, uh, Jeremiah really is more interacting with God So God tells Jeremiah what to say, and throughout the first 20 chapters, you actually see Jeremiah responding either to what God has said or to the persecution he suffers because of speaking the message. And look at verse 7 of chapter 20. Again, this is kind of like Jeremiah is summarizing some things to conclude this first section. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction, because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. For I have heard the whispering of many, terror on every side. Denounce him, yes, let us denounce him. So by the way, that's them mocking Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been saying God's judgment is coming, and they're, They're almost like mocking him, like, oh boy, terror on every side. Yeah, right. Um, But then he says, all my trusted friends watching for my fall say, perhaps he will be deceived that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. And he remembers the Lord in verse 11. He's with him like a dread champion. Therefore, those persecuting him will fail. They will be ashamed. He says in verse 12, God is testing the righteous. He's examining the hearts. Jeremiah knows that in the end, as we talked about this morning, the wicked will be judged, the crooked will be made straight. Verse 13. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of the evildoers. Now this doesn't change the visceral and gritty reality of Jeremiah's circumstances. So look at verse 14. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying a baby has been born to you and made him very happy. And look at verse 18. Why did I ever come forth from the room to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Just like Psalm 89, this is not a contradiction. Uh, Jeremiah is not having mood swings. There's just this balance of there is a reality that Jeremiah is absolutely, grievously suffering. It is intense and it is ongoing and it's not going to stop. For the rest of Jeremiah's life, these same things are just going to go on and on. But in verse 13, God's praise 
eclipses those circumstances because his promises hold greater value, greater power than circumstance. So I say that to say sacrifice of praise. When we are least motivated to thank and praise God, it's the most important to do it. When giving God thanks is the last thing on my mind, it needs to become the first thing on my mind. Even small things, this this might sound really silly, but I think there's a common way that we all struggle, um, and I think it's with being tired. Um, I know it might kind of seem like a small thing, but if you wake up and you're just, you're very tired, you don't even want to wake up, you just think like, oh man, another day. (laughs) You know, you just like are having trouble even having the fortitude to just get out of bed and go. You thought about even thanking God for being tired. You know, God, thank you for allowing me to go through this. You think about how often do you think Jesus was tired? Do you think Jesus was tired when he was being whipped? Do you think he was tired when they were slapping him in the face and he was blindfolded and they were asking him who it was who was hitting him? Do you think he was pretty exhausted by that point? When the thief on the cross was talking to him, do you think he was pretty spent by that point? And that's all just to say that God understands being tired. And sometimes even something as simple as struggling with being tired, I think, can lead us to understand how much closer we can be to God, even through something that just might seem like small and silly, just to say that we we need to be seeking to connect even the most minor inconveniences of our life to giving God thanks. And I think it it just gives such a new perspective. Um, Doing good and sharing. Well... One more thing I have on my notes that I, I want to bring up. In the epistles, one, one other thing that's mentioned about giving thanks is replacing complaining with thankfulness. And I think that's a very important discipline, just having the honest self-reflection of recognizing if, if there's been complaining, if there's been um, grumbling uh, with responsibilities or just unexpected things that happen, Just be honest and reflect on that and and think about giving God thanks for that very thing. Don't just let the opportunity go by, but give God praise and ask for God to help you to recognize those opportunities, to replace complaint with joy and praise. And again, that's, I think, when it truly becomes a sacrifice. So verse 6 mentions doing good and sharing and not neglecting to do those things because with such sacrifices, God is is well pleased. When you consider the liberty involved in this, He's not telling the reader that they need to sell all their goods and you know, have tons of money that can be given away like candy to children. He's just saying, like, don't neglect to do good and to share. And when I read that, I automatically, the first thing that comes to my mind is generally money, sharing money with people. But I think there, there's a creative liberty involved in this, that sharing in any way can be very pleasing to God. And I want that to be as open as God allows it to be. Think about Ruth. Was Ruth generous in the book of Ruth? I would say Ruth is one of the most generous people that we read about in the Old Testament. But she never actually gave any monetary income, necessarily, to Naomi. She was generous with her energy. She was generous with her time. She she shared what she had to her mother-in-law. Naomi was generous in seeing an opportunity to help Ruth find um, stability in Boaz's household because by right, he could redeem her and marry her. And Boaz was generous by allowing them to come into his fields, by uh, even marrying Ruth. And, and so just generosity permeates the book of Ruth. But it's not people giving each other money necessarily, but in other ways, 
using what they have to do good and to share. And I think like the liberty is in verse 16, no matter what condition we may be in financially, there will be opportunities to do good and to share. So for instance, uh, I know this might be embarrassing, Miss Joanne, but Miss Joanne uh, and Mr. Bill allow people into their home, right? And there's, there's a great degree of sharing involved. And if somebody wants to spend time with you, just like letting them come in and even sharing your time with them, sharing emotion with them, sharing your life with them. So again, God, I think, is giving us great liberty to understand that God is not begrudgingly a master that is impossible to please, looking down at the servant, you know, like a harsh taskmaster saying, do more, do more, do more. But I think, again, there's liberty in the simplicity of recognizing that even when I'm suffering, I have to remember that I can still be well-pleasing to God in my circumstances, even when they're difficult, right? So uh, verse 17, sacrifice of submission. I think this is a really interesting part of this letter. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. So in verse 17, mentions, obey your leaders and submit. Why is this so important? Now, I want to put back into our minds that these were Christians who by every implication within the letter itself, these were Christians who were withdrawing from one another, right? So you have to think how important it would be if, if there is leadership in the congregation, let's, let's say elders who are qualified for the work that are wanting to shepherd God's people, but there's no involvement. And people are very distant from each other. They're not looking for the accountability that comes with spending time with somebody in that work and in that role. And you imagine how difficult it would be for a shepherd to then do his work. And I think this kind of gives light to the work of a shepherd. And I think a shepherd then, by implication of this, is somebody who's teaching and exhorting and encouraging, who's even exhorting and encouraging growth in difficult situations, somebody who's trying to keep watch over the condition of a person's soul, even when they may not be in a place where they're looking for any kind of accountability to that quality of leadership. So again, I think it it gives some light to the work of an elder and the boldness of an elder, seeing the priority of God's mission, even when others aren't buying in or allowing them to do their work in the way it ought to be done. Shepherds keep the flock from being complacent. Um, That's one thing we really have to be aware of here is a lack of an eldership means greater opportunity to become very complacent. And I think the uh, author of this letter was not just himself trying to bring them out of complacency, but to recognize how the work of the elders was already there, and that was supposed to be winning them out of their complacency as well. Um, Think about this maybe like an intense personal trainer. Um, What happens when you become disinterested in meeting the kind of goals that a personal trainer is trying to work with you to meet? So let's say you you go to a gym, and uh, you're paying somebody to like be really intense and motivate you and they know the routine to get you on, they know the foods for you to eat to meet your goals and they're very excited, they're very goal-oriented and initially you know, you're very excited with them and, and you love the accountability, you like it when they text you and tell you to come to the gym. You know, all those things are good but what, what happens when that person who at one time was motivated 
but they no longer see the point anymore. Or they're becoming disinterested in meeting their goal. They're not really interested anymore in really having the diet that would help them get there or really having such an intensive routine. And, you know, isn't this personal trainer, his attitude, isn't it really just a bit much, you know? And you begin to want to avoid those interactions, right? You begin to not really want to be around that person or be very involved. And I think that's how an eldership can easily be seen sometimes when members of a congregation are no longer as ambitious about God's goals or about the things that God is calling us into. So we need to maintain, as the letter um, gives light to, we need to maintain view of Jesus in the way that keeps us motivated to become accountable, to grow, to be challenged, to not be complacent with where we are, to not be complacent with the way we're serving God right now, but to always want more, like the Colossian letter, um, the prayer of the Colossian letter that we read in our Bible study. Um, so I, there's an illustration that helped me a lot in relation to all of this. And really, there, there's, two, there's two illustrations that I want to I give about this as well, with obeying and submitting to leaders, let them do it with joy. I remember hearing a reflection from uh, a shepherd of a congregation in Texas, uh, and he was talking about one of the other shepherds who had been there, who had died. And this other shepherd had died of cancer. He had mentioned that when the shepherd was, the elder there, was diagnosed with cancer, he was very afraid because when the elders got together after his diagnosis, he shared with the other elders of the church that he did not have confidence that he would be able to give an account to the people, give an account to God for the people at the congregation. And he recognized that his way of shepherding was far too generalized. He really didn't understand what the condition of each person was in a way where he felt comfortable uh, knowing where each person was in their faith. His reflection was when the elders had that meeting, it changed the nature of their work permanently from that point forward. Because of his honesty, because of his fear in that regard, they started working with people very diligently and very individually. So it changed the focus of their work and it encouraged them to get very much more involved in the lives of each person. So we have to keep that in mind as elders are called to be individually invested into a congregation. And that's what we're trying to understand as we grow here locally as a congregation is we're wanting to cultivate greater and greater interest in individual applications of love. How do we interact with each other in a way where there is that spiritual concern and focus in our relationships? Second illustration is another UPS illustration. When I was in management, um, I was accountable for my employees. And very often, um, I would have employees who really uh, were not doing a very good job at their, at their work. And when higher management would come in, and I would know they were going to be in my area, that would make me really nervous because I knew that they were going to want to hear about my employees and what was going on with my employees. Now, either I was at fault because I was neglecting to give what my employee needed to do the job correctly, so then I would be the one in trouble, and I would be written up or whatever, you know, be warned that I would get fired if I didn't make a change. Or if I was held accountable for my employee, and if it was clear that I was actually doing everything I possibly could for the employee, but they were just being stubborn and rebellious and they just really didn't want to do the job correctly, they were going to get in a lot of trouble and they were probably going to lose their job. So I think when he says, let them do this with joy, not with grief, because this would be unprofitable for you, what happens if an elder of a church is giving an account for a soul? And there's somebody who an elder has really tried to work with, 
and they have not shown any sign of responding, do you think that person is just going to get by okay? I think about when Jesus in his ministry would talk about the cities that had not repented at the preaching of his disciples. He would talk about Capernaum being condemned by Tyre and Sidon. That they would be condemned by cities like Nineveh because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So what Jesus is saying is, you know, don't worry about me. You've got other people who are actually going to accuse you before God and they'll justify God's judgments against you because they responded. So I think a part of the fear is if we have elders and we're not allowing them to do their work with joy, that's something God is very concerned about and God will hold sheep accountable for, for not submitting to the shepherds that God has appointed. Um, They keep watch over our souls. So in verse 18 and 19, praying for leaders. So the author um, asks them to pray for him. And I think, again, with the lesson this morning and some things we've been saying with prayer, the author really believes that God is very active in responding to the prayers of his people. And so in verse 19, he's asking for them to pray. And he says, I urge you all the more to do this. And I think he's talking about praying for him that he could be restored to them. So the author believes that there's some hindrance that with prayer can be resolved if there's a fervency in the people receiving this letter to pray for him. So praying for leaders, praying for leadership, again, praying that this congregation have men who arise to the task of serving in that capacity, who are qualified for that work, who are diligent in that work, who desire that work. I think those are all things that, again, are sacrifices of submission. And ultimately, we should have the earnest desire to submit. Submission is a concept that in the world is a very negative term. Um, it's looked, looked at in a very negative way. But sheep of God should have earnestness with submission. And if God shows that here is a way that we can submit, here's a direction to submission, the sheep ought to follow the voice of the shepherd. So 20 through 25, sacrifice of power. Um, It might sound unusual. I hope that'll make maybe more sense as we read this last section. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Verse 20 through 21, Jesus is actually mentioned three times in that short exhortation. Um, So it mentions him as a shepherd in verse 20, and then Jesus our Lord at the end of the verse, and then in verse 21 uh, near the end, it's through Jesus Christ. So three times in that short little verse, Jesus is mentioned. That everything is being done because of him, through him, and for him. That all the glory goes back to him. Yet, I think the idea of this is we submit to God, we sacrifice power to God, we sacrifice glory to God. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is a verse that uh, we studied just very recently with Glenn leading Philippians. Um, and I mentioned this morning. But look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. I think this is a very important quality of the obedience of faith. That it's not just that when I obey God, I'm just doing things that he said. And I'm not disconnected from God as I do things here on earth as he is in heaven. And so I think recognizing God's work that 
It's not that I'm the one ultimately working. I'm submitting, I'm surrendering, I'm sacrificing my own power to live by God's power. I'm sacrificing my will so that God can complete his will. That our work is to surrender and to die to ourselves so that God can work his own will out through us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who is working here? So he tells them, obey, in verse 12. And he tells them how serious that obedience is. The obedience that we ought to give to God, it's, it's so serious that it ought to even incur a sense of responding physically, this fear and trembling. But it's because we recognize that God is the one who's ultimately at work and are submitting to him. Maybe a, a good way to illustrate this. Technology always works, right? Technology always works the way you want it to work. That's like sarcastic. It doesn't. Uh, my mom and my dad, uh, they're computer programmers, so like they're the ones who write the code behind the scenes of phone applications and websites. And a lot of times they're fixing glitches and errors. They're fixing bad code. They're fixing crashes. And they're trying to design things in a way that minimizes problems. How, how do you feel when you're trying to use a program or a website or an application or even like play a video game and it crashes on you? Or you clearly input something that is by every implication supposed to do exactly this and it does something completely different, right? It's frustrating. So you imagine the exhortation in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, that we have been designed as vessels for God to both work in and work through. So how do you think God feels then when we are redeemed as his people, when he's given us his spirit, he's given us every reason to recognize the glory of his work and purpose, and we, just like a crashing computer of application, computer or application, something is not happening that's supposed to happen. The, the input is not resulting in the effect it's supposed to have, right? And so God is striving to win our will. And that, that adds to the significance of how the Hebrew letter is organized. You have 10 chapters where there are, there are undercurrents of application threaded through those chapters. But the greater the greater body of writing is dedicated more to cultivating faith in the heart, an understanding of God and a comprehension of his work, his salvation, being able to see Christ clearly from many different angles, recognizing his activity as a priest, recognizing the glory of his compassion and empathy in what he endured in his physical ministry, the compassion we receive when we approach his throne by faith. So all of these things are helping us to understand what we need to gain in our hearts in order to surrender the will. Because the greatest work that God is striving to do toward us is win the will. God is striving to win the will. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. God is not going to domineer us in our faith. He's not going to force us harshly to obey him. Hebrews chapter 5 mentions that if what we've received in tasting the good things of God and of salvation in the Spirit, if that's not enough to win our will, then what can restore us when we are lost and disconnected from him? 
Because that's how God wins our will, is through Jesus, through promises, through understanding, to the glory of what we can comprehend by faith. So going back to chapter 13, I think that gives context to the final exhortation we've referenced many times in verse 22. And we'll bring the lesson to a close. Bear with this word of exhortation. The Hebrew letter has some pretty stern warnings and it's some pretty strong personal things that are said to the original audience. It's a tough pill to swallow that even when we're suffering, we can still grow and serve God and make hard choices to be closer to him. And if our attitude is not in the right place, all of that can just be so easily ignored. It's like, I hear it, but I just don't really want to hear it. I just want to move on. And the writer is cautioning us, don't, don't just move on. These things may need to be thought about a bit. You may need to hold on to them and keep them in your mind. You may, like the psalmist, need to take command of your will and say, I'm going to meditate on these things. I'm not going to let the importance of these things be lost. And that ultimately is the exhortation, to take such great concern for the glory of what God has done, enough to recognize God's will is so vital to connect with because there are so few who are willing. So let's allow God to win our will. Uh, we'll stop Hebrews there and we'll end the, uh, the book. Uh, in a few weeks, um, Lord willing, I'm going to be studying on Sunday afternoons the book of Zechariah in about five or six sermons. And I think um, I'll have the opportunity to teach through that and finish that before May or in the middle of May. Uh, if you have any books of the Bible that you are particularly interested in hearing sermons on, um, let me know. Um, after Zechariah, if there's maybe a book of the Bible you haven't really heard any sermons on or a book that you feel like would just be interesting to have talked about, um, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. So let me know. Um, if there's anything in this lesson with Hebrews 13 that's convicted you or made you recognize that change needs to be made and that you'd like to bring that before the church, whether it's obeying the gospel and, and surrendering your life to God and his kingdom and his son, or even just confessing sin or asking for encouragement, now is the appropriate time. Always stand and sing.